We are in this series, we're in week number three of a series from 1 John, the book of 1 John. It's towards the back of the Bible. We've called that series In the Light because it, that's a phrase that happens over and over again in 1 John. As John says, we need to walk in the light as, as he is in the light. We have fellowship with God, fellowship with others. And so all the lamps that are here, um, this is not Menards today, uh, you know, short term. It, it really is to just remind us visually that we need to live in the light and we need to walk in the light. Two weeks ago when we started, I said, um, as I've studied through 1 John, it seems to me that there's three pieces that are critical to 1 John. John wrote... Uh, so, that, so that his hearers would have certainty about Jesus, that they would know who Jesus was, that Jesus came to earth and he was fully flesh. He was a human just like us. He experienced the stuff that we do. Um, he had a body that worked just like ours. He was, he was fully human, but he was also at the same time fully God. He was God in flesh. Incredible thing. So John wrote to, to, make, uh, to help his readers be certain about Jesus, to be certain about how to live. Um, today we're talking about uh, uh, one aspect of that uh, is, is where we'll go. But there's, there's continual teaching about how to live, certainty about how to live, and certainty about eternity. That ultimately John, John wrote to say, you know what, you can have confidence in the future. You can have confidence about eternity. So if you have your Bibles, if you've got the app out, uh, go ahead and go to the sermon notes. We're going we're gonna to actually reread where we were last week because it kind of sets up where we're going to land today at the beginning of chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. John wrote this, This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John starts, he, he kind of makes the, the turn from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Now, when John wrote the letter, there weren't any of the, the chapters and verses, so he's just going along. And when you hear the words, my little children, you can hear them really one of two ways. Uh, sometimes, have you ever had your boss say, you're acting like a kid? Um, or maybe uh, somebody in your family say, come on, grow up, you're being a child. That's not the perspective that John has as he writes this letter. John at this time is probably in his 90s. He's old and frail, has loved Jesus since the time that Jesus called him. Uh, the, the commentators tell us that, that they carried John to church because he couldn't walk. So when he said, my little children, he, it, was a, it was a term of tenderness of compassion, of, of connection with them. In about an hour, my oldest daughter and her husband and my three grandkids are driving into town from Missouri. You know, when I see them 
and call them, oh, kids. There, it's, there's this connection that happens in that, this, this tenderness that's there that says, oh, man, I love you. I've missed you so much. That's what, what John is doing when he says, my little children, I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. Uh, God's plan is that his children don't sin. Don't miss that. God's plan is that his children don't sin. Well, last week we talked about sin means, that the, that the definition means to miss the mark. It's uh, the bow and arrow where you shoot the arrow and it misses the target completely. That's, that's what sin is, to miss the mark. What I want to communicate today is that sin, when we experience sin, when we sin, we break fellowship with God. We, we create a broken relationship with Him that has to be fixed. Uh, you know, the, um, when someone lies in the context of a marriage, when trust is broken in the context of a marriage, what hap- or in the, in the context of a family, when your child lies to you, what happens? It, it creates this broken relationship, this awkward, uncomfortable silence that happens when you walk in the home, right? When, when you realize that your trust has been violated and you walk in, it's like, eh, no eye contact. It's just kind of there because the relationship is so strained because of that break. That, that weirdness happens as you try and talk because of the broken trust, because of the, the, the breakdown in that relationship. John says, if you say that that doesn't happen with you and God, you either don't know God or you're lying to yourself. When we sin, it breaks our relationship with God. You know, that concept, um, John, in his biography of Jesus, in the Gospel of John, two different times he uses the phrase, he quotes Jesus using the phrase, sin no more. And it's interesting that the other Gospel writers don't use that phrase. That was something that John picked up on that Jesus said. In, in John chapter 5, Jesus has just healed a man by the, um, by the sheep pool that couldn't get into the water. And uh, in verse 13 of of John chapter 5, it says this, The man that had been healed didn't know who had healed him, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Look, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus that had healed him. Just a few chapters later, chapter 8, Jesus, um, the, the religious leaders try and trap Jesus and they catch a woman in adultery, bring her to him and, and, um, and say to Jesus, what should we do? Jesus kneels down in the dirt. He ultimately says to these religious leaders, if you've never sinned, you throw the stone. And, and they put their stones down and walk away from this woman who was caught in adultery John chapter 8, verse 10 says this, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. That concept that we're, to, that we're to flee sin, that we're to run away from sin, that we're not to engage in sin, that's a 
concept that's consistent throughout Scripture. God's plan is that his children don't sin. Why, why do we choose to sin? I, I think it's because we think that we know what's good for us, what's better for us, more than we trust God, right? We look at poison and we think, oh, that looks really, really pretty. I'm going to drink it, not recognizing that when we do, we'll die. When I was probably six years old, my sister Sherry, who was 15 months older than I am, uh, got chickenpox. And and as she got chickenpox, got sick, ran the fever, did the whole thing, she got this prime place on the couch at our house. She got the the couch right in front of the TV. It was great. That was no big deal because I could sit in another chair and still watch TV while she was watching TV. But the the thing that got me as a six-year-old was she got a special glass to drink out of a glass that we never drank out of any other time. It was glass, physically glass, and it had flowers, that, all kinds of colors that were on it. And I remember as a kid thinking, it's not fair that she gets to drink, that, drink from that glass. So that glass was in the bathroom, and I, remember, I can remember going into the bathroom and seeing that glass and thinking, it's not fair that she gets to drink from that glass. We never get to drink from that glass. Taking the glass, turning the water on, filling it up, taking a drink in the bathroom with the door shut, taking another drink, filling it up, uh, drinking it down. Um, And, you know, uh, I had wanted, when Sherry got chicken pox, I had wanted to kind of play dot to dot with the chicken pox. Um, They didn't let me. um, But after that little trip to the bathroom, it wasn't long before I had the chicken pox and they wanted to play dot to dot with me, right? I thought I knew better even though I knew I wasn't supposed to drink out of that cup. I I didn't think it was fair. So I chose and I got the consequences as a result of that. Why do we choose sin? Because we think that we know better than God what's good for us. Why do we choose sin? Because we miss what really matters. We miss what's really important. We say that we can't help ourselves, but that's not really true. How many times have you said, oh, yeah, you know, I, I gave in. I just couldn't stop myself. Understand that that's a lie from Satan. Uh, the, the, most, the, the two best illustrations I can give are this. If, if there are two teenagers um, up late at night watching a movie, sitting in front of the TV, and they start to um, engage in physical behavior that is a result of their homo- hormones that they shouldn't, Okay, we got the picture there. Um, They're going at it, and and they say, I can't can't stop, I can't stop, I can't stop. And the girl's dad walks in the living room. Are they going to stop? Absolutely, in an instant. But they've just said, oh, we can't stop, we can't stop. If a thief or an addict, if an addict's going out to, to buy whatever they're addicted to, if a thief is breaking into a home and a police officer arrives and comes on the scene, parks his car, turns his lights on, are they going to stop? Absolutely. We can say no to sin. We have the ability to say no to sin. Oftentimes, we just don't recognize what's at stake. We miss what really matters. C.S. Lewis wrote this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum 
because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do you understand that so much of the time, like C.S. Lewis said, we're the kid playing with a mud pie, not recognizing that just a few blocks away is this beautiful beach by the ocean where we can play and play and experience that in all of its splendor. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Christians can never sin cheaply. They pay a heavy price for iniquity. Transgression destroys peace of mind. It obscures fellowship with Jesus. It hinders prayer. It brings darkness over the soul. Therefore, be not the serf and bondsman of sin. Don't be a slave to sin. Sin to me is like Chinese takeout food. It tastes great in the moment, and it fills you up. But as soon as you finish eating Chinese, if you're like me, 20 minutes later, what are you saying? I'm hungry. Because it smells good, and it looks great, and you go through the process of putting it in your body, but there's not the substance to it that can sustain you. And what happens the next day? The next morning, you get on the scales... And you've gained like five pounds because of all the sodium in that Chinese food, right? You're retaining all that water. Sin looks good on the surface. We say, we've got to have that. It smells good. It looks good. But it doesn't fulfill. It doesn't deliver what it promises. John says, uh, do you understand, you people that I love, I'm writing so that you won't sin. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John says, if we do sin, if we do sin, when we do sin, Jesus is our advocate. It seems like that's a contradiction, doesn't it? Um, it's, it seems like those two concepts can't stay in balance, that, that we're supposed to avoid sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate. Um, in reality, those, that, that's not inconsistent. It's incredibly great news because we recognize that in our human nature, our ability to say no to sin is going to be compromised. We are going to mess up, and when we do, there's hope for us. Because we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney. That word, advocate, is the word in the Greek is paraclete. It, it means to come alongside. Um, earlier in, in, uh, in the Gospels, that word is often used to describe the Holy Spirit as one who comes alongside us. But more commonly at this, at this point in time, the, that word paraclete de, uh, describes a barrister. It de, describes a, a person in a courtroom who defends someone who has been charged with a crime. If you can picture in your mind, as Satan accuses us before God, Jesus is our advocate. When we sin, Jesus is our defense attorney before God. Um, I, I recognize that for some of you, you've had some bad experiences with lawyers. And so to talk about Jesus as a defense attorney, uh, that, that's, a, that's a big step because um, not all lawyers are good, right? 
Um, This would normally be the place in a message where I would launch into a series of lawyer jokes uh, to just kind of have a break. But what I discovered is that there's really only three lawyer jokes. All the rest of them are true. Um, uh, (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh, Understand this. Jesus speaks to the Father on our behalf. He defends us in the presence of God. Perhaps the most famous trial in most of our lives is the trial of O.J. Simpson for the murder of Nicole Brown in 1994. If you remember, Simpson's defense team was called the Dream Team. It was composed of Johnny Cochran, Effley Bailey, Robert Shapiro, Alan Dershowitz, and Robert Kardashian. It's estimated that that defense team cost O.J. $5 million. Their job was to do whatever was necessary to have O.J. acquitted. If you remember the, the phrase, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. They appeared every day before Judge Ito, appealing on behalf of their client. What gave them that right? What allowed them to approach the judge. For those five guys and in any courtroom, the only person who can do that is a person who has passed the bar exam, right? They've gone through the schooling, they've done the work, they've studied the law, they've, they've uh, shown that they can master that, they've passed the bar and gotten their law license. For these guys with OJ, it was not just that they had their license, but they had proven their capability to defend their clients over their lives. They had They had established themselves as the premier defense lawyers in the United States. What gives Jesus the right to be our advocate? What gives Jesus the right to be our defense attorney? Understand that John says it's his righteousness. It's his righteousness. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus' ability to live a sinless life here on earth is what allows him to stand before God and to defend us when we sin. Understand that that's a completely different function than Jesus as our Savior. Jesus came to earth and died and took our sin on himself. He saved us from our sins. That was a one-time event. But I think for a lot of us, we think about Jesus in this way. We we remember Jesus in the Gospels. We think about him teaching, about him healing, about him uh, feeding people, about doing miracles. And we think about Jesus going to the cross for us. And, and, And that's absolutely true. He died in our place. He took our sin on himself. But but our our thoughts about Jesus just kind of stop right there. We think, oh, yeah, he died for us. Now Jesus must be concerned about the people who were born five years after me or 10 years after me or or a generation after me, those people who who, who are beginning to understand who he is. Jesus is concerned about them now. That's not the picture that John paints. Understand that Jesus is daily before the Father as our advocate as our defense attorney, that daily when we sin, Jesus stands before God and defends us. He allows his righteousness to be placed on us uh, so, that, so, that, so that God's anger is taken away, so that his wrath is taken away. 
Jesus didn't come to earth and go to the cross thinking about you and then forget about you. He has never lost interest in you. He speaks to the Father on your behalf every day. He cares about you personally, individually. He thinks about you nonstop. A pastor at at, uh, a church in Denver said this, We're represented by the law firm of Holy Spirit and Son. Jesus has his offices in heaven, and he's placed the Holy Spirit on permanent retainer in your heart. The Holy Spirit pleads the cause of Jesus to a hostile world, and Jesus pleads your case before a holy God. John wrote, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is our propitiation. Everybody say that. Jesus is our propitiation. Just say the word propitiation. Propitiation. That's not a, anybody heard that word before apart from in church? No, that's not a word that, that we commonly use. But in the Greek culture, it actually was a fairly common word. Because in the Greek cult- culture, there, there was this picture of the gods, of the Greek gods, the Roman gods, who were, who were um, angry and capricious that would, that would do things on a whim. And the propitiation was what was done to appease that anger of the gods. It was, it was uh, whatever steps were taken to make things right. Um, it, it may say in, in, uh, in another version of Scripture maybe that you're looking at, uh, Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. One version says Jesus is our satisfaction before God. Propitiation is whatever it takes to pacify someone who's been offended. What, uh, whatever is necessary to remove an illness or an infection. It's the removal of whatever would cause God to be angry. Um, what's that look like for us in, in real life? Is that something that we think about very much? Um, what happens when you get into a fight with your wife or your husband? Uh, we'll just say husbands. What happens when you get in, a, in an argument with your wife? Oftentimes, oftentimes, you make a trip to the flower shop, right? And you come back not with a carnation, depending on how big the fight is. You come back with a dozen or two dozen, or three dozen roses to say, honey, I'm sorry, I've got to make this right. Maybe you don't do the flower shop. Maybe it's that you clean around the house or, or you know, do whatever you can to make things right. If, if you're a dad and you come home from work and you notice that the lawn has been mowed, that it's been trimmed, that the windows have been washed, that the screens have been cleaned. You walk in the door, you walk by your teenage son's room, and everything is clean and put away. What do you know? Something's up, right? Something is desperately up. You know, probably he either got a speeding ticket or had a wreck in the car. Something happened because what he's done is propitiation. He's... What he's done is to try and take away the anger of his dad. John R. W. Stott said, In pagan writings, propitiation was commonly used for the appeasement of an angry deity by offerings, gifts that were given 
to appease the gods. So base and corrupt was this heathen conception that many modern scholars have altogether rejected the notion of Christian propitiation. It's incompatible, they say, with the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. Instead, they translate the word expiation, our sin is removed, and assume that what's meant is not the placating of the wrath of God, but the annulling of the guilt of sin. A whole lot of words to digest right there. Let me just say it this way. The concept that's there is not that our, um, it's not that our sin is taken away. It's that the wrath of God is taken away. Um, Jesus, by taking our sins on himself, allows God to love us in a way that he couldn't if we were sinful, because God's nature is perfect and holy. God, in his character, can't allow sin in his presence. And when he looks at the world and, and, and it's torn up by sin, by, by all of the stupidness of us, God doesn't just say, oh, that's okay, it's no big deal. There's a righteous anger in God. It's not capricious. It's not by a whim. It's, I did not design this world to be lived in this way. And Jesus, by taking our sin on himself, by becoming our propitiation, allows God's anger to be taken away and allows us to come back into relationship with him. God's wrath is not arbitrary or capricious. It bears no resemblance to the unpredictable passions and the personal vengefulness of the pagan deities. Instead, it is his settled, controlled, holy antagonism to all that's evil. The means by which his wrath is averted is not a bribe, either from us or a third party. On the contrary, the initiative in propitiation is entirely God's. God set the pieces in motion so that Jesus could take our sin on himself. God set the plan in place so that his anger could be averted. The love of God and the justice of God come together in Jesus in that word propitiation. In Romans 3, Paul wrote these words, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because his divine for, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God could maintain his character, his righteousness, and at the same time, he could make a way for that to happen through Jesus, just and justifier through Jesus. How, how did Jesus become our, our, become our propitiation? Through his death on the cross. The question for us, I think, is what's your picture of God? How do you see God? Do you see God as, a, as one of those Greek-Roman capricious gods that fly off the handle for no reason at all? Do you see God as a, as a sheriff or, uh, you know, as, as a law enforcement person that, that's there just ready to whack you when you get out of line? Do you see God as this kind old grandpa who says, ah, it doesn't matter, it's no big deal at all? 
The picture of God is that God, God's nature is consistent. And propitiation changes. It, it, Jesus becoming our pro, propitiation allows God to be consistent in his nature and still love us. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin. One day, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. Because when we walk in the light, it means that we walk away from sin. That when we do sin, that we confess it and God's faithful to forgive us. Understand that God is completely satisfied with Jesus. You don't have to worry about satisfying God, about doing all kinds of good works. You don't have to worry about measuring up. God is completely satisfied with Jesus. Does that mean that we can sin in any way that we want, that we can live with disregard to God's, God's plan, God's teaching, God's, uh, God's uh, design for our lives? Not at all. John said in verse 1, I'm bright in this so that you don't sin. God is a friend of us. He loves us desperately, but we can't come to him because of our sin, only because of Jesus, because Jesus is our defense attorney. Can we, can we be in, back in a relationship with God? Uh, John said this, He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus came for the whole world. Don't miss that. No sin is too big. No person is out of reach of the love of God. One scripture in the last few years that just has come to mean a ton to me is Isaiah chapter 50, verse 2. It says this, God's, God's talking through Isaiah and he says, Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? With a word, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into deserts. Understand that when we think that our sin is too much for God, we miss who God is completely. Is my arm too short for you, God says? He has the ability to forgive anything that you've experienced in your past. No matter how hopeless you feel today, no matter how desperate that weight is, God has the ability to make it right through Jesus. John wrote in chapter 3 of his gospel, For God so loved the world, the world, the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So here's the question. What do you believe? What do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about sin this morning? Do you believe, and, and some of you may be there, do you believe that you don't sin, that sin's just a construct of culture, and you don't sin? That, that may be where you are today. Do you recognize that you sin, but you think ultimately it really doesn't matter? Eh, if I sin, it's no big deal. I can, I, I can do whatever I want. Say, so, yeah, I sin, but it's not that big, big of a deal. It doesn't matter. Or do you think that your sin breaks your relationship with God and breaks your relationships with other people, with part of God's creation? 
if that's the case, if sin breaks your relationship with the Father, something or someone is going to have to make it right. Something or someone is going to have to make it right. Either you're going to try and be your advocate with God. You're going to try and dictate the terms of your release before God. Or you're going to have to accept Jesus as your defense attorney. And ultimately, the proof is in the verdict. The proof is when we stand before God, what it looks like. Paul said, Romans 3, there's no one righteous, not even one. So the question is, is your defense attorney worth his fee? Abraham Lincoln is quoted as saying, he who represents himself in a case of law has a fool for a client. Nadal Hassan um, has defied those words uh, when he went to court. Nadal Hassan is the, is the army psychiatrist who went on trial for killing 13 people in a shooting rampage in November of 2009 at Fort Hood, Texas. He's an American-born Muslim who allegedly believed that he was killing on behalf of the Muhaj Shadeen, sorry about that, about, for the Holy Warriors. In his trial in, in August of 13, he chose to represent himself. He was convicted by 13 jurors on 13 counts of premeditated murder. He thought he could justify himself before the judge and jury. The question is, who will represent you before God? Do you plan to defend yourself, to justify your actions, to compare yourself to others and be okay? Or do you want Jesus as your defense attorney? Not just for your salvation, but for every day of your life. On July 30th of 1994, Seth Midens of the New York Times wrote an article about the cost of O.J. Simpson's defense team. This is how his article opened. How much will O.J. Simpson have to pay for his ever-expanding defense team of lawyers, investigators, and experts? Many outside lawyers answer with a question of their own. How much money does O.J. have? A defense like this will cost your net worth whatever it is, they'll take it, said John Shepard Wiley, professor of law at UCLA. A defense like this will cost your net worth whatever it is, they'll take it. What does it cost to secure Jesus as your defense attorney? It costs everything. Many of us try and live with a foot in both worlds. We say, yeah, I want God. I want Jesus. But I also want this, whatever it is that's here. Understand that if Jesus is going to be our defense attorney, it takes everything. It takes saying, I'm all in. I will not hold anything back. The crazy thing is, and this is different than the world that, that we live in, when we place our trust in Jesus as our defense attorney, when we give him everything, the end result of that is that we get more than we ever had before. We get more than, than what we try and hold on to because he has promised us life, life to the full here and life in eternity in the presence of God. So much more valuable than the stuff of this life. Will you have Jesus as your defense attorney? Let's pray. 
God, uh, there's, there is just so much spinning in my mind right now. Lord, I ask that, I, I ask that you would fill us with your presence, with your spirit that you would give us the ability to say no to sin, that even this afternoon, tomorrow, as we go to work, as we drive, whatever, when we think, oh, it doesn't matter, I can't help myself, whatever it is, that you would speak to us and that we would not sin, that we would choose a different path, that we would choose your way instead of our own. God, collectively, we thank you so much. Those words just seem so, uh, so tiny that when we do sin, Jesus stands before you on our behalf. God, that, that because of his righteousness, because of his death, our sin can be washed away completely. It can allow us to be in God's presence and God's nature not be violated. Lord, we thank you for that. God, our, our deepest desire is that we would choose you fully today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.